You're listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to My Pocket Psych, episode 45. This is the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Dr. Richard McKinnon. I'm the managing director of Work Life Psych. And this is one of those episodes where I've been let out to play by myself. No Pilar to keep me on the straight and narrow. Due to a combination of work commitments and holidays and schedule clashes, Pilar and I have been unable to get together to record uh, for a little while. So hence, we, we had an interviewee who came on for the last episode, and I'm by myself on this one. So hopefully in the absence of Pilar, I'm going to be able to continue um, keeping to the script and keep this episode to a reasonable length. I hope that hasn't put you off listening. Um, I can tell you right now there's plenty of uh, interesting stuff I really want to share with you today. Let's start though with some listener feedback and it's always great, always great to hear from people who are listening to the podcast and as I invariably say we know you're out there, we can see the download stats but it is really nice to hear from people who are actually listening. So we, we had a, um, a tweet in response to Pilar sharing a link to episode 43, which was all about resilience in the workplace. And Teresa said, I think resilience is used as the remedy by companies that cause toxic, difficult environments. Resilience in itself is good for a person, but not the way I've seen it promoted in a few companies. So thanks for that comment, Teresa. And, and I think that really gets to the nub of what we were saying, that resilience can be interpreted in different ways. It, it can mean different things to different people. And there are contexts in which it can be overemphasized within the organization. You know, you need to be resilient to survive here. And an emphasis on training people in resilience-based skills uh, instead of maybe making it a healthy place to work. So if you haven't heard that episode, it's uh, episode number 43. Um, all of the episodes can be streamed from our website at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. And you'll also find all the show notes there. We also had um, a message on LinkedIn from Joanna, uh, who listens and said, uh, Hi, Richard, a quick message to say I'm enjoying your podcast. I especially liked when you said that coaches are not perfect people. They just have a perspective on you and how you shared your imposter syndrome showing up before the Dublin conference. Overall, it's a very interesting podcast and I'm looking forward to listening to more episodes. So thanks for getting in touch. Thanks for letting us know that you are enjoying it. And, and yes, it was interesting to talk about my own little experience of imposter syndrome. Who am I to be presenting to these people who are experts in contextual behavioral science, um, as was at the Dublin conference. And uh, I quickly got snapped out of that by my, my colleague, uh, Rachel Skews, who put me on the straight and narrow. But it, it's really interesting to remember that 
We each uh, can fall into these thinking traps very easily unless we remain aware of, of what's going on inside and have a listen to those thoughts and not necessarily take them as, as true or as good signposts for what we should do next. Moving on to news. And if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, what we generally do each time is try and gather some news we've come across online or, or from other sources. And these are aligned against the three big themes that we work on at Work Life Psych around productivity, around well-being and effectiveness in the workplace. Under the productivity theme, I came across a great episode of one of my favorite podcasts, app stories and i'll link to this specific episode in the show notes it's a review of the upcoming um, updates to the reminders app on ios now a couple of episodes ago i discussed how the upcoming changes to the software on iphones and ipads could potentially help us be a bit more productive especially with the ipad it's turning into quite the interesting laptop alternative and i think it could work that way for a lot of people based on what's coming down the pipe however it's only beta software at the moment not something to download and put on your machine unless you're really really confident in how to deal with the inevitable challenges but on this episode of the app stories podcast they went into some depth on the reminders app now the reason I'm mentioning this is because, you know, I frequently run workshops on productivity themes for clients, and we talk about the benefits of having some kind of system to put your tasks, your thoughts, your ideas, and your reminders into, so that you're not relying on your memory. And, you know, one of the questions I invariably get is, well, what system do you use? Is, is it an app? Is it a notebook? And I think, as I said before, I use an app. It's my personal preference. I use Todoist. It ticks all the boxes for me personally. I'm not saying in any way you should all rush out and download this app for yourselves. But what I've seen in the updates to the Reminders app which is built in to iOS, uh, quite a few nice things that I think could help individuals, maybe you, who are thinking about starting to use an app for your reminders rather than carrying it around in your memory. I think this could really help you. Now, I would usually say the best app is the one that you have. Uh, the better app is the one that you're actually going to use. There's no point in having a list of tasks if you don't look at that list. But the, the, the Reminders app is built into all the phones and, you know, iPhones are incredibly popular. So it's, it's usually the case there's at least a few people in the room with me who have iPhones and we can have a look at the app together. The Reminders app is, is being updated to give it a little bit more detail. It previously was just a series of lists of reminders. And while it was useful to be able to dictate your reminder through Siri into the app, um, now it's going to present those reminders, those tasks in different ways. And you can, for example, see a screen that's just got things that are due today to give you a bit of focus, because we all know that a very, very long list of tasks can be quite off-putting, maybe even a little disconcerting. You can also see things that are um, undated. You can see things by different project. Uh, now, it, it, it still hasn't gone into the level of detail with some of the big name task management apps that are out there. But really, if, if, you're, if you're relying on your memory or random post-it notes, you might want to take a look at this come September uh, when the um, update to iOS will be made public and hopefully the majority of the bugs will be squashed. 
I'll put a link to that episode of App Stories uh, in the show notes. Uh, continuing on the productivity theme, I came across a great article in the New York Times, and the full article is available online, so I'll link to that, about multitasking and the costs of multitasking. We've talked about this before, and I think I've said pretty consistently Multitasking is a bad idea. Um, we might have the belief, the very strong belief, that we're more efficient when we multitask. I would ask everyone to make the distinction between multitasking, you know, doing a few things at the same time when it's not that important. The example I share is eating your dinner in front of the TV. You know, what's the big deal if you miss a few seconds of TV? Uh, you, you might be able to rewind that show or missing a few seconds has no real bearing on your life. And you know what? If you drop some pasta on your lap, well, you know, maybe it'll teach you to not eat in front of the TV. But the consequences, they're not that serious. However, if we take this into the workplace and you think about multitasking, why having a conversation with someone or you're, you're really paying attention to something in a meeting and then suddenly your attention is drawn to an email on your phone and you're trying to do both those things, your performance on those tasks is really going to suffer. No matter what you're saying to yourself about multitasking, your performance is going to suffer. Now, this article is really interesting because what it does is look at why we multitask. So I've banged the drum to say, you know, minimize this as much as you can. Pay attention to where your attention is going. And this article really flags up why people multitask and the benefits we think we get from that, uh, such as the belief that, you know, m music playing can, can help us study or, or work more effectively. Uh, the belief that we are more efficient when we, when we do these things. I'd really recommend it as a good read, particularly if you want to share it with someone in your life who is a consistent multitasker, you haven't introduced them to this podcast or for whatever reason, they, they, they still disagree with what we've been saying. I think it's a quite interesting and a, and a compelling read. And it takes the examples out of the workplace and brings them to other contexts such as driving, you know, and the impact of multitasking on our own driving performance. And yet we know that that can happen which is why we potentially turn off music or shush someone who's talking when we're on a very unfamiliar road or where the, the weather takes a turn for the worse. So, you know, it sounds like we kind of do know when we really need to up our attention in one area and reduce the distractions. So a great, a great article there. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And just finishing off on the productivity side of things, I'm just prepping to run our Pillars of Productivity workshop here in London very shortly uh, with a new client, with a new team. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, the Pillars of Productivity uh, training is a one-day workshop. We talked about these pillars, these principles of productivity across a number of the podcast episodes from earlier in this year. You can find them all uh, online. Uh, you can find them via this app you're listening to right now. Um, but it's always great to get the principles in front of a new audience with, with very different roles and explore how they can adopt them, make them real for themselves, and hopefully get some of those benefits of thinking a bit more mindfully about how they do things, what they do, and what they choose not to do. In well-being news, uh, sleep is the theme. 
this time around. Um, if you're based in the UK or in continental Europe, uh, the last few weeks it may have come to your attention how important sleep is with the heat wave we've been experiencing. I've uh, had conversations with a lot of people in the last couple of weeks who've uh, either demonstrated really clearly or explained in great detail how little sleep they've had because the heat just has not dissipated in the evening. And that can be a, a surefire way to really damage uh, the quality and the duration of our sleep. So um, the uh, the two links I'd really like to share with you, one is, is from The Guardian, uh, just from the other week. Uh, it's a story that I hope isn't out of date already. And the reason for that is since it was published, uh, there's been a change of government, which you, you may have encountered on the news at some point. But the reason I mentioned that is that the Department of Health is considering issuing sleep hygiene guidance to the British public. And um, obviously, there's been a new government installed, new cabinet, but hopefully there's some continuity in what the Department for Health is doing here. And really, they're, they're looking at the evidence for sleep disruption, sleep disturbance, and looking at how it impacts our functioning during the day. Everything from emotional regulation, concentration, productivity, all the way up to how chronic sleep disturbance can really impact our general well-being and specifically our mental health. And because sleep is an area where we all kind of think we're an expert, because we all sleep, we all experience sleep, it's an area where we can come across a lot of myths, uh, a lot of false beliefs in, in how to improve our sleep, or indeed what kind of sleep you need, you know, how long it's beneficial to sleep. And so I, I really look forward to some guidance coming out that is scientific in nature, that is evidence-based, uh, and I really hope it's made available to people in an accessible format, you know, that basically anyone can pick up, can understand, and can start putting into practice. Because a lot of what's referred to as sleep hygiene, people talk about as, well, that's common sense. But in fact, they're not doing it themselves, are they? And you may be listening to this right now and realizing you're maybe contravening some of these principles of, of good sleep hygiene. You might be sitting in bed right now with your laptop uh, working. Um, you, you might be uh, in bed right now with an iPad, you know, multitasking. Um, but you might identify in your habits some of the things that aren't so great for the quality of our sleep, such as consuming stimulants like caffeine late in the day or even at night. Um, being very active just before bedtime, including exercise, which we often think is, is great for us. But if we exercise too late in the evening, that can make it difficult to, to get good sleep. It can definitely make it difficult to uh, nod off in, in the first place. So I really look forward to that. Let's hope the, the changes in uh, who makes up the cabinet uh, doesn't have too much of an impact on what the department is, is planning to do with this. And then just today, uh, I came across uh, today, as in when I'm recording this, um, I, I came across uh, another story also in The Guardian. Um, when I was getting the link for the other story, this popped up, um, sharing some research about the benefits of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy for people who experience insomnia. Now, this is insomnia proper, not when uh, you might find you've had a bad, bad night's sleep due due to something like the heat or a noisy neighbor or there's some emergency roadworks out on the street. And they're just some examples I'm picking from my own experience in the last month. But, but uh, insomnia where you have regular sleep disturbance on an ongoing basis. And there's some pretty clear 
uh, or clear-ish diagnostic criteria for that. So we're talking about a, a sleep disorder here, not talking about occasional disrupted sleep due to your own habits or something that's going on in your environment. And this review of the research has shown that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, can be useful for people who have that ongoing insomnia challenge. And the recommendation is that more GPs, general practitioners, are trained in CBT so that we can get access to these therapies through primary care and, and address this backlog that exists in the UK to get access to um, professional, evidence-based uh, mental health support. Now, obviously, that's not something that could be switched on immediately. Um, you know, that training takes time, processes take time to put in place, questions about funding. But I thought it was quite nice to see this story in a, a general newspaper exploring the manifestation of insomnia and exploring the benefits of CBT, which, according to this article, include falling asleep faster, up to 30 minutes faster after the CBT, um, and experiencing a reduction of between 22 and 36 minutes in the amount of time spent awake after going to sleep. Because, of course, we can have insomnia that takes the form of finding it difficult to get to sleep or insomnia that's about uh, being, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and then finding it difficult to get back to sleep. So it's, it's useful to look at it from both of those perspectives. And of course, one of our episodes back in our well-being focus uh, was all about sleep. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really interesting to discuss that topic when I when I was talking about uh, sleep uh, in the run up to recording that, you know, why, why are you talking about sleep? This is a podcast about the workplace. But if any of us who've had that disturbed sleep, even for just a couple of nights, know we are not at our best in the workplace. And that sort of sleep deprivation hangover comes with us into the workplace and it can make everything, everything that little bit more difficult. So if you want to have a listen to that episode, that was episode number 18, uh, The Importance of Sleep. And uh, uh, referenced a couple of um, books there that at the time we thought were really relevant. I'd, I'd still recommend them. Uh, Dreamland, Adventures in the Strange Science of Sleep by David Randall. And When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Dan Pink. Both really accessible, interesting explorations of sleep uh, for, the, for the general reader. And finally, in our uh, effectiveness news, um, something that, you know, you've probably heard me talk about either on this show or if you've seen me present when talking about the topic of evidence-based practice, some myths that people believe uh, about, you know, how our brains work or our personality or our behavior, some of these myths persist. No matter how much we try and stamp them out or how, how much compelling evidence there is in the opposite direction, some just 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 will not go away. And one of these is the belief in learning styles. The fact that we have a very strong preference in one direction for how we learn, uh, how we acquire new knowledge. And in um, the, I think it was the most recent episode of the Research Digest from the BPS, they shared a really interesting exploration of the kind of people who strongly believe in learning styles. So it wasn't presenting the evidence for why they don't exist. 
They've done that before. The evidence is out there and it's really compelling. They were exploring the kinds of people who hold on to this belief and um, exploring the difference between acquired learning styles versus those that are inherited genetically. And um, it, it's a really interesting little discussion about that. I'll put, I'll put the link to that. And, and I do recommend that if you're interested in learning more about how we think, feel, behave, sign up for that uh, Research Digest from the BPS. It's a great newsletter. It's completely free. It always links to very interesting stories that are well-written. And I would uh, I would recommend people read rather than kind of trawling the internet for things because, as we know, the internet is not always to be believed. Um, before we move on to the main, uh, main course of uh, this episode, I want to remind you all, this is episode number 45, how time flies. And we are flying towards episode number 50, which I think is, is going to be a landmark for us. Um, I'm going to celebrate it anyway. Um, I can't remember the last time I got to 50 of anything. Um, and so we, we want to make that a special episode. And as such, we'd love to hear from you, the listener. And so what we'd like you to do is, is tweet us or send in your questions via our feedback form. Um, we'd love to know what it is that you've learned from the podcast that you've put into practice that has worked for, for you. You know, is there something you've heard us discuss where you thought that's relevant to me? I might try that. Maybe it's something around one of the principles of productivity. We, we discussed, you know, prioritizing your workload. Maybe it's something about your well-being or managing stress. Maybe you've gone on to access some of the resources we've shared and that's, you know, led to a bit of a light bulb moment for you or someone you've shared it with. We'd really like to hear those stories. What have you got from the podcast? How has it worked for you? And of course, what could we do better? We, you know, we do want to improve what it is that we're doing. We want to do a better job. We want to make it more relevant. Uh, we'd love to hear about that as well. So if you're going to tweet at us, the Twitter handle is mypocketpsych. Very easy. And please use the hashtag MPP50, mypocketpsych50. And that way we will be able to spot it really easily. I don't anticipate this uh, hashtag is, is going to go trending or anything like that, but it will make it easier for us to find them and share them. And if you have something very extensive you'd like to uh, uh, send us, you can do that via the contact form. And you can find that at worklifepsych.com forward slash contact. And you can, you can send us any length of message there. We'd really, really like to hear from you. At Work Life Psych, we believe that coaching is for everyone, and so we have created a cost-efficient, flexible and impactful solution we call Coach on Campus. This means coaching can be made available to more junior employees, emerging talent and technical specialists within the organization without incurring the cost or commitment of executive coaching packages. A work-life psych coach is based on the client's site on a regular day each month with a schedule that is dedicated to that organization. We'll facilitate six one-hour-long coaching sessions throughout the day. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash coachoncampus. So let's move on to 
I suppose, the main topic, which is all about mobile phones. And we've encountered uh, the, con the, the, the topic of mobile phones uh, several times over the last uh, 43 episodes that we've recorded. But way back, well, it seems like way back in episode 17, uh, 17, I interviewed Laura Willis from Shine Offline. And that was an episode called We're Not Designed to Be Always On. And that's absolutely true. And what Laura does is organizes and runs workshops to give people some insight and some skills to create a better, healthier, more sustainable relationship with their mobile phones. And it's very interesting because it often comes up in productivity workshops or, or indeed well-being workshops that I run for clients when, you know, the, the challenge with switching off, the challenge with not picking the phone up as soon as you wake up in the morning, the challenge with, you know, switching off from our digital workplace connections is is discussed but but back in episode 17 it was it was a great conversation to understand Laura's initial experience that prompted her to look at this in a bit more detail to remind people that they can have a very valuable and fulfilling life offline from time to time and uh you know that discussion with Laura came flying back into my mind last month uh when my own mobile phone was stolen. Um, I was in uh, Spain on a long weekend break before doing some work in, in Barcelona and uh, down in, in Sitges on the, on the coast. And um, I have a, a habit of being very careful about my phone. And, you know, I, I don't leave it lying on a table. I don't have it hanging out of a pocket. I, you know, these things get stolen left, right and center. But um, at some point in the evening, I, I patted my, my pocket as I do to check everything's still there. And of course it wasn't. And I and a, and a bunch of ho um, other people in this bar had all had our phones taken. So first of all, kudos to the very professional thieves that managed to make it in and out without getting caught immediately. Um, and we know they took quite a few phones because obviously we all chatted to each other about this out on the street when we realized our phones had been taken. Maybe you can hear the smile in my voice right now. I, I think it's fair to say I wasn't smiling then. My mind went straight into disaster mode, catastrophe mode. And then, I, yeah, I think there was quite a bit of anger there as well. Uh, anyone who witnessed me on the street would have seen I was pretty hacked off about that. Because my mind went straight to, oh my God, what's on the phone? Everything. My life is on that phone. All the stuff I need, all the information I refer to, my calendar, my emails, you know, all my, my, my boarding card for my, my flight is on there. Uh, I've got train tickets for next month on there. I've got, I had a ticket for an exhibition here in London that was on there. So I immediately began to think about what I was losing. And it did take a little while for me to really calm down and realize, all right, that's all been backed up to the cloud. Once you get another phone, it'll all reappear. So then I went into safety mode about, right, let's make that phone unusable for whoever's taken it. Uh, let's wipe it remotely. And so luckily back at the hotel, I did have a, an iPad in the safe and I was able to get online and, and do all of that. So you would maybe think my mind could have been at rest at that point. But of course, we went from the, I'm so annoyed I've, my phone's been taken through to, hmm, now I don't have a phone. What difference does that make? And I will admit, I, I had a few minutes of, well, it won't make any difference. I'm a grown man. I don't need a phone to function. 
Well, if you've met me, you'll know that didn't last very long. After the annoyance and the shock uh, passed, I then began to notice those times during the day, those little gaps that would have been filled by use of the phone. So what I thought I would do is share some of that, because as I began to notice this, I began to immediately think of Laura. I began to think of our conversation and and like the true professional I am, I began to think of this podcast. So I started to try and keep some notes about what was going on so that I could share it with you uh, when the when the time was right. And it was interesting. Right, let's put the frustration to one side. The things I noticed And top of the list, which I did not expect, I missed the camera most of all. I missed being able to take a snap of something as soon as I thought of it. And thinking about that now, I I take an awful lot of photos. I take photos of my own notes, of um, post-it notes, reminders. I take photos of my environment. I take photos of, you know, lovely things I encounter on the street, nice views, and especially when on holiday, but also when I'm at home. I I frequently take screenshots of things to have that visual reminder, and that might go in my, my diary, you know, my journal. That might be used for work. But there's photos galore. And I found myself physically reaching for the non-existent phone when I saw something that resonated with me while I was on holidays. And it might have been a reflection on the water. It might have been a building I hadn't noticed before. Um, And we were there during Pride. So there was plenty of, you know, people in costumes and, you know, things you don't normally see on the street. I thought, oh, that that would be a brilliant photo. And, of course, reach and the pocket is empty. So the camera came out top for me, which is really interesting. Possibly equally interesting is that I kind of didn't miss social media. And I sort of have to work hard not to get my face in social media all the time. Because for me, it's interesting. There there are so many interesting things to be found on Twitter and so many attractive you know, aesthetic things to be found on Instagram. I I follow a lot of accounts that are, you know, um, views of landscapes and um, beautiful sites in cities I haven't visited yet. And so it's quite easy for me to get drawn into that stuff and then realize, oh God, where has the time gone? But actually, without the phone in my pocket, where it was easy for me to, you know, grab it, have a quick look at Twitter, share something on Instagram, you know, immediately, after a couple of hours... I didn't think of it. Now, I went three days without the phone. Um, It was three days before I got back to London and uh, a replacement was waiting for me here. But for those three days um, in in Sitges and then uh, working in Barcelona, yeah, social media was not something that was sort of a burning issue for me as I began to reflect on not having a phone. Um, I, I still had my Apple Watch on my wrist. And what was funny about that was, obviously, this smartwatch needs the phone. It pulls in information from the phone to display. And maybe that's your calendar. It might be reminders. It might be um, the, the weather. But of course, without any phone to pull it in from, the, the data was um, well out of date and, and of no use to me. And yet I kept looking. And that was a, um, a, a habit that I realized wasn't going anywhere fast because this thing was physically still on my wrist. Now, it was still telling the time, 
amazingly, smartwatches do that without the phone. But all the other stuff I would use it for, no, it it didn't make a, a difference. Now, were there any positives from this? And I'll be honest, I had to dig deep because it was a real hassle from a logistical point of view, because if I wanted to claim on the insurance, I had to get a, you know, a crime number. And we, um, <clears throat> we invested, shall I say, four hours in a police station in order to, to deal with all of this. It wasn't the most efficient experience I've ever had. But on the other hand, um, they were dealing with so many people who'd had their phones stolen. Uh, and indeed, a friend of ours actually got his phone back. You know, I didn't get mine. My partner didn't get his. But, um, you know, for four hours, that was that was not really how I wanted to use my time. Um, were there any positives? Well, actually, yes. You know, with no mobile phones out on the table, with a lot more conversation, with a lot more in the way of chats and discussing what was going on around us. And I, I was paying attention a lot more to things. Now, I did have the thought that would make a lovely photo, but I don't have a camera with me. I don't have my phone. So why don't I just enjoy looking at this thing, whatever it is, building, person, you know, a nice tableau of people having fun, whatever, whatever it was. And so that noticing the, the the visuals around me and paying attention and discussing those things, I realized that we both had a habit of potentially sitting side by side uh, at a table in the middle of a really interesting environment and sharing it online, not discussing it live. And I know, I know we're not the only people uh, in the world to do this, but it really brought it home for me. And, you know, I, I realized that newsflash, it, it is possible to survive without a mobile phone uh, for quite some time. It's a hassle and you might have to think laterally. And I suppose I did have the comfort that it was time limited. And as soon as I got home to London, there would be a replacement waiting for me. But actually, uh, I realized a lot of the habits I have associated with my mobile phone are not uh, essential. You know, they're not as essential as... Um, uh, being able to pay for something, their enjoyable habits, reading interesting things online, sharing photos or taking the photos in the first place, uh, looking things up, you know, to, to settle an argument or to find out more about a location. None of those, they're, they're nice to have. And, you know, we, we survived uh, many, many thousands of years without having this stuff in our pocket. Now, if I was being um, a real Puritan about this, I would say, well, maybe I don't need a smartphone. Maybe I can get a very simple phone if, if uh, I can survive by just making phone calls. Well, actually, I didn't miss out on any phone calls. It's, it's everything else I use this thing for. I'm very rarely on the phone. I'm using it for other things. And it was a relief to have a replacement in my pocket. And uh, But it did make me more aware of how it was being used and um, paying more attention to the amount of time I spend with my face in the screen. It's not at the stage where it's a unhealthy relationship with the phone for me. And, you know, in, in prepping for this and in, in um, putting some notes together on our shared Trello board, uh, Pilar spotted that I was doing this and shared a link with me, which I'm going to put in the show notes, which is a clip from BBC Five Live from a recording of one of their shows with uh, the comedian Russell Kane talking about his own slightly unhealthy relationship with his mobile phone, where he realized he was using it instead of interacting with members of his own family. And he went to get, 
you know, help for that, some uh, tips and tricks to reduce his reliance on that. And, you know, many of you listening out there might identify with um, possibly, you know, sweaty palms when you even imagine not having your own phone. Uh, You might be able to very clearly imagine the hassle factor of not having your phone to hand and how that could make your day-to-day existence a bit more annoying and uh, and so on. But you're probably not uh, in any way addicted to your phone. You don't have that terrible, terrible response when it's not uh, within arm's reach. But you're somewhere in the middle, maybe. You wish you had a more functional, healthier relationship with your technology. So I'm not going to suggest you get it stolen to have a bit of a break from it, but what you might want to do is is experiment on putting it out of sight, uh, putting it away in a drawer while you have a meal, and then you know focusing on the meal, focusing on the people you're you're uh, you're sharing the meal with, um, having an agreed time to put it into um, flight mode so that you can't be contacted for for a period of time, um, paying more attention to when you actually just reach for the phone out of habit. On that BBC Five Live clip, and it's it's very very short. Um, Russell Kane talks about his inability to queue because he can't queue for the sake of queuing. It's being in a line of people, but using the phone to avoid the experience, uh, potentially the boredom or frustration that comes with queuing. And so it's always looking at the phone. So if you can notice when you're reaching for your, your mobile phone and then ask yourself, are you doing this with a purpose in mind? You know, checking a, uh, the, the time of a train you, you're going to get, uh, looking up some information online to help you with the next step of something you're doing, making a phone call to someone that you decided you're going to, you're going to call? Or are you doing it simply out of habit to relieve some kind of discomfort elsewhere in your experience? Are you reaching out of what you think is boredom? Uh, are you uh, looking for that phone to scroll through some social media, but you don't remember why you're doing that? Or do you have the experience that you pick it up to do one thing and find yourself doing something completely different and then remembering and having to go back and open up a whole other series of apps? Again, I'm not advocating a Puritan, you know, get rid of your phones. Uh, they are tools and when they're used well they are fantastic tools and and there's no doubt they make our lives very very much easier however it's useful also to reflect on when you're using them in a way that's not really intended or when you're using them to avoid something else that's going on in your life so just pay attention to that and notice are there any uh, times when you're more likely to do that and if it is that form of discomfort boredom or distraction whatever it might be See if you can experience that discomfort and really think about what is it like to feel boredom? What is it like to feel this frustration that you can imagine? And then you can, with time, build a tolerance for that. So you can experience boredom, but not have to, you know, move in the opposite direction from that and get some kind of stimulation. It's just another experience that we we all have from, from time to time. So my call, I guess, is uh, don't take me as your role model, uh, but do have a think about how you're using or not using your mobile technology. And I suppose the same would apply to uh, to tablets and, and, and everything else that you could be connected to the, the internet on. And just think about how helpful some of those habits are and 
maybe engage in some uh, pretend time when you don't actually have access to your mobile phone and see how your life is a little bit different and notice where your attention goes when it's not fixated on a on an illuminated screen in your hand. So we've come to the end of episode 45, uh, an episode I've managed to get through, I think, without adult supervision, without Pilar's uh, guiding hand. Um, and I've actually had notes to remind me of which episodes uh, I've been referring to. And I think I've done that fairly consistently. So uh, by way of reminder, everything I've referred to in this episode is going to be in the show notes. Um, and they're available at worklifepsych.com slash podcast. And you can send us your feedback via Twitter on my pocket psych or via the longer um, contact form where you can send us I think any length of message and that's at worklifepsych.com slash contact and we both really look forward to hearing from you so particularly in relation to this episode we'd love to hear about your relationship with your mobile technology can you empathize with my experience of not having a phone for three days or so uh was i a wuss do you think i should have been able to deal with that a lot more positively and has it happened to you and and what was what was it like for you Anyway, we've come to the end of another episode. That's been episode number 45. As ever, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.